Welcome to the Make the Future podcast. I'm your host, Jacques Beauvais, Dean of the Faculty of Engineering at the University of Ottawa. Join me as I connect with our alumni, students, industry partners, and researchers to explore the future of technology and innovation and how, through creativity and collaboration, we can make our own future. They say the future is coming, but that's not true. The future is already here. And it's relentless. It's not going to wait for you to catch up. How will we live in this future? How will we make sense of it? To define our course, we need a new perspective. One that engages our curiosity, that activates our imagination, one that defies the conventional. To own the future, we need to do more than just see it. We need to make it. Welcome to today's podcast, where I'll be chatting with Mathieu Gamache-Asselin, a class of 2012 alumnus who is the co-founder and CEO of Alto Pharmacy in San Francisco. Welcome, Mathieu. Hi, good to be here. I'm also joined by Olivier Miguel, a class of 2016 alumnus who is currently pursuing his master's degree in biomedical engineering at U-Ottawa with the Clinical Biomechanics Research Unit. Welcome, Olivier. Thank you, thank you. We will be discussing how impactful technology and entrepreneurship can help make the future in the healthcare sector. We also hope to offer you a glimpse into the role that the U-Ottawa community is playing in the thriving tech and innovation sector. And I'm also very pleased to talk with Mathieu today as he is the recipient of our 2018 Faculty of Engineering Alumni Entrepreneur of the Year Award. So congratulations, Mathieu. Thank you. So let's start from the beginning with you, Mathieu. And so you were working at Facebook. So what what possessed you to leave a job at Facebook to co-found and lead your own online pharmacy? <laughs> yeah, yeah, great question. So I, I actually never, um, never actually applied to work at Facebook. I, I joined from an acquisition of uh, the server I was at before called Parse. Okay. Um, I, I left University of Ottawa um, in 2012 uh, to join Parse. Uh, Parse was this mobile backend as a service platform. I think it was the fourth engineer there. Um, and it was a really amazing experience. I was there for just over a year before we got acquired. And I, I really love that small environment where you get to, you know, work on a lot of different things, wear a lot of different hats. Um, and, and with the acquisition came a lot more structure, a lot more, um, you know, I think, you know, check boxes to check. And that, that wasn't really for me. Um, I stayed on as, as long as I could, uh, kind of muster and, um, you know, I, I think when you're you're outside Silicon Valley, it looks you know big and glamorous, and you know you work work at Facebook and, and Google, and when you're in those companies, you really quickly realize there's um, there's a lot more in the world that that I think needs to get done than you know ad optimization or or, or working on sort of the latest feature in, in in one of these platforms. And me and my my co-founder Jamie, you know, we both wanted to work on something we we felt had more of a social good impact. Right. And, and I'm sure that's something Olivier can, can relate to. Um, I think most people that are drawn to healthcare are drawn to, um, you know, that, that human impact that you can have. Um, and after a few years in Silicon Valley, we're both like, you know, there's, there's a lot of work going on for, um, you know, the, the, the 1%, let's say. Um, and we both left wanting to do something 
socially impactful. And, and I, I did a lot of, of biomedic classes um, while in the University of Ottawa and, and healthcare was sort of a really interesting space to, to both of us. So um, we both left and, and said, well, you know, we'll, we'll find something that, you know, I think we can apply our skill set to. And um, that's how it came to be. Interesting. Does that resonate with you? Yeah, you definitely. The social impact part, uh, absolutely. Like most of the work I'm working on definitely has that as, um, I'd say like a goal number one is to really have that social impact. Yeah. But how, how do we, um, you know, e- e- students are prospective students that are listening to us and, and are starting their undergraduate degree or will start it. How they're thinking about a job, right, later on. And wh- what you're talking about is still fairly risky of going into these small startups or, or how do you, how do you sleep at night? <laughs> <laughs> oh, you, you don't, you don't. Um, <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I think um, entrepreneurship and, and even just working at a startup attracts, um, I think, a certain uh, type of person. And mm. I, I think it, it has to be something you want to do um, and something you get a lot of pleasure and value from, um, right? It's this this very, you know, you're in the trenches, you're with, you know, your team and your group and um, you're, you're trying to fight the big guys, Um and it, it's not something you you do either starting a company or joining a small company when um, you want that safety net, you want um, you know that that steady salary, that steady um, income. You, you join a startup or you start a company if you're really really focused on impact, right? You, you want to have a certain impact on the world, and you, you really believe that um, either the approach of the company you're joining or, or the approach you have in mind is, is novel and different and can really solve a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that's for me at least something that um, I- I've always been fascinated by and interested in. Um, I-, I think that's something I-, I-, I came to appreciate really in university um, as I discovered that world of entrepreneurship. Um, and for-, for for students who are kind of struggling, which one do I do? You know, I-, I definitely ran into that. It's like, hey, do I join a big company? You know, make out of school in Silicon Valley, you can make one fifty, one sixty thousand dollars a year, American, right? And that's a huge amount of money. Um, why, why would you not take that and go take the small salary at a startup instead, or, or no salary, and start your own company? Um, and really, for me, it was like, look, those jobs will always be there, right? I'm at a age in my life where I can take those risks, mm. right? I don't have a family yet. I don't have kids. Um, I don't need that steady income. Um, right, I can live on on ramen in a studio apartment if I want to, um, and you should really take those risks if you want to take them. You should take mm-hmm. them when um, when you're young and when you you have the ability to take those risks. What about the worry? When I started my startup about 20 years ago, what I worried about was was not me, but I was worried about the people who worked for me and trying to maintain their job. Is that is that is that still a concern today when you're in a startup? Or oh, is everybody together and just saying, you know, for the good of the company? <laughs> you know, I, I think that they'll vary by stage, right? When you're really early, you know, your first 10 employees, let's say, um, all of you are much more focused on let's just do what's best for the company. Mm-hmm. Um, today, I mean, we have 200 employees um, and that, that's probably the thing that stresses me out the most. Mm. Right. It's it's am I doing the best thing to help all those people we've hired? Um, And a lot of those people, right, are are not um, engineers. We have a huge team of of patient care, of pharmacists, of technicians. Um, And what worries me the most and stresses me out the most is 
um, can I make sure I'm creating a long-term company, a long-lasting mm. company, so that all these people that have come joined us and, and believe in our mission, um, I, I, am I doing right by them? That's, that's, I think, always inevitably becomes one of the biggest worries of any entrepreneur. You're, now, you're both working in sort of the healthcare area. And we, we actually have now, in the Faculty of Engineering, we've identified five major themes to, to be able to structure our research activities and help develop critical mass. One of them is uh, enabling technologies for healthcare and augmented life. So, so like you're right, right smack in the middle of one of our major research themes. But it comes with a lot of responsibility, right? Like you're 3D printing uh, prosthetic arms for children. How how do you balance that in terms of how do you see your responsibilities when you're doing that? Uh, that's a good question. Um, yeah, responsibility wise, I would say my biggest worry in terms of responsibility that comes when I'm working on a project like that is, am I giving something to this child to this child that will fit and that will work? Because the way it's working right now is we're getting we have a contact in the country that comes in grabs a hand when it's ready and comes back out or leaves the leaves Canada and goes back to the country and provides it to the to the kid. So the fitting and all the customization of of that prosthetic hand is quite difficult to do remotely. So you don't actually meet the children. We didn't meet them yet. Oh no. god, okay. Um, we're supposed to eventually, but at this point it's getting the fit and make sure something works because you don't want to let it's kind of similar to what Mathieu was alluding to. You don't want to let them down. Yeah. So, yeah, I would say that's probably where my responsibility lies, making sure I'm providing a product or a device that works well from the start. Okay. Now, I'm, it's less clear to me how what you have to worry about, Mathieu, because how about telling us a little bit of what's an IoT-enabled pill bottle and, and how, how that works? Yeah, yeah. Also, I mean, also as a whole, it's really a pharmacy, right? Just like your you know, Walgreens, CVS in the U.S., Trappers Drug Mart here. Um, and you will know, we'll deal with the, the range of medications from, you know, whether it's your birth control pills or it's your, your, your cancer treatment, um, which I don't know the price in Canada, but in the U.S., those are, you know, 40, 50,000 bucks a month. Um, and what we've tried to do is, is come up with a much more sort of, you know, specialized solution for, for the, the sort of variety of patients that you'll run into, right? Not, not building this sort of really cool, you know, mobile app where you could, you know, have cool animations and stuff. We really try to start with how do we meet patients, whether you're, um, you know, in the U.S. On, on, on Medicaid, so low-income and disabled patients, you're on Medicare, so the, the more senior population, or, you know, you're, you know, a, a mid-20s, um, you know, millennial, and, and you, you love using your, 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 your smartphone. Regardless of your, your demographic, right, we want to create a solution that works for you. Um, some of these medications are so expensive that, if we can help remind you to take it, whether it's with you know a smart pill bottle, um, with an iOS app, with a phone call, right, with a text message, mm. um, if we can help you remind you to, to take your meds when your next refill is coming up, then, then that, that sounds great. We'll, we'll do that. We really try to add as many features catered to, to you personally as we can um, to, to help you manage those therapies. And how do, how do you get all the information about your requirements? Are you working with pharmacists or with doctors or who do you work to, to establish your, your, your requirements? Yeah, so I mean, we have a team of, of clinical pharmacists, of production pharmacists, of, of technicians that will field the medication, of, of you know, patient care staff um, that, that will interact with their patients a lot. Um, we've really tried to build the, the entire vertical, right? Not, not just 
um, a cool tech or software layer for other pharmacies to use. Um, and so this comment you had on, on responsibility, you know, to me, it, it's, it's not, um, you know, it's not, you know, shipping you, uh, you know, vitamins or, you know, some you know, furniture or something cool on Amazon. We have this deep responsibility to be reliable and to be safe. Right? We have to get the right meds. Imagine if we get the wrong med to you. Mm-hmm. Like that, that could really harm someone. Um, let's say we don't get the medication. We're late. You know, we, we forgot about your order or something. Um, th- that could call real harm to, to someone. Um, and it, it's been really difficult, I think, for us as a, as a startup to manage both the, the need to grow, right, and to grow quickly and to scale quickly. All investors want, right? They want the next Uber. Um, and yet... Also balancing that with the need for safety and reliability, which always says, "Hey, slow down. Right? Mm-hmm. Make sure you're you know, you you walk before you run." Um, and that's always a difficult balance to strike. And I think we've really tried to side on the side of um, caution and reliability over you know grow at all cost. And and you know if problems happen, that's okay, right? It's unfortunately not a not it's a, not a ship now debug later type exactly. Of approach. You, yeah. you don't get to do that. In yeah, right. I'm sure you you, no, you yeah. can sort of speak to that as well like you can't just print something hope for the best it doesn't fit well too bad no no yeah if it doesn't fit like it crushes hearts or in this case for you it could probably kill someone yeah. if you're not careful so. so who do you surround yourself with are they people who think exactly like you or are <laughs> they people who challenge you on a daily basis to make sure that <laughs> the company moves forward yeah you know i i i really view my role more as um helping us all face in the same direction Okay. Um, there's a great quote. I, I forget who um, who said this, but it's you know, a seal's job is um, to align all the vectors, right? All your people are vectors, where the you know the direction is their goals and the length of the vector is their impact. And you can easily do nothing with thousands of people if they're just facing opposite directions. Mm-hmm. But if you align them all, that's where you can maximize your impact as a company. And I, and I really view that as as my goal. And I've you know we've been able to hire an amazing team of you know, more senior pharmacists from some of the incumbents um, and also, you know, young, scrappy pharmacists that just really want to work hard and, and, and change how things are, are, are done. Um, and I think you always need that balance, right? Because you never want to stray too far either direction. So what's the connection between what you're doing today and when you were a student here at the University <laughs> of Ottawa? How, how do you see, how did it, did it shape you or... Did it give you skills you're still using? How do you see the connection? Yeah, you know, I, I, I don't think a university's job is really to teach me a bunch of knowledge because you'll always fail at that, right? There's no way I can take any three, four, five-year courses of courses and, and learn everything I need to do. Um, I, I really view a university's job as teaching me how to learn. Um, and I, I, I'm sure you know, your Absolutely. master's now and... Yeah, um, you've experienced that many times, but you know, my first year in university, I was so used to like you go to class, right? You listen to the teacher, they tell you what to know, and then you go and do the tests. Um, and I, I remember this amazing discovery of books. Like, oh, I can just read the book, and I can learn everything I need to. And in fact, most of the time, I need to, otherwise, I'm going to fail. That's mm-hmm. it. Yeah. Um, and that, that's really an amazing discovery. Um, was for me at least because it's like oh I can I can teach myself this stuff and that is probably the most important skill to learn in university it's learning to learn learning yeah. to learn yeah yeah it's it's crazy how useful that is and how 
we don't realize it until you finally discovered it. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're just annoyed that, ah, oh, why do I have to learn all this yeah. stuff? <laughs> yeah, exactly. How about a question for both of you? You know, you're, you're working with IoT technology, the pill bottle, the apps and all that. But that technology is shifting as you're developing the products. And same thing for you in 3D printing. It's mm-hmm. evolving quickly. So I'm just kind of curious to see how, well, h- how about you, Olivier? How do you see 3D printing evolving? Because it's not, it's not right now, it's not a high-speed production oh, no. technique. Uh, and you're developing this, and you're talking about very specific individuals for whom you can do something. Yeah. How do we scale that, or, or how do you see the future? Yeah, that's a very good question. Um, I think... For, for healthcare specifically, the main thing is, well, starting, 3D printing is in its infancy. Mm-hmm. So, um, like, just in the orthotics field, the research has been there for about 20, 25 years, which you think, oh, that's a long time. But for research, that's not very long. Um, so there's still a lot of work to be done. And, and a lot of that would be developing methods uh, for how to most effi- effectively or efficiently produce what you're trying to produce. If it's an orthotic, if it's um, a model for pre-surgical planning, whatever it is, right? Um, but another key point is most people think like that 3D printing is just, you know, push button and it starts and it goes. But no, there there's actually quite a bit of time before the pressing the button and depending on the printer as well after. Mm-hmm. Um, there's prepping the designs, prepping the model, um, that can take time, and then there's the assembly or cleanup, if you wish, which it can be quite labor uh, labor intensive. But uh, that last part is starting to fade away now with the newer printers coming out with dissolving materials, or at least water soluble dissolving material, and the pre printing, which is all prepping of designs, is very in the it's it's all on the computer. So that has a lot of potential to be um, transformed if you automate a lot of it. And I think that's where uh, technologies like machine learning and AI are really going to really help push 3D printing um, to that really fast production. I'm interested about, you say, in the prepping. and, and There's a really interesting novel by Will, William Gibson where in his series of three novels, there are basically 3D printers in every 7-Eleven, in every town, in every block, you know, every street corner. Do you see a future where, like you've got your 3D printer in the basement. You see everybody having their 3D printer at home or is the prep work actually a challenge and and you need to be an engineer to do that? Right, you you need need to be a hobbyist. Okay. Maybe not an engineer, but um, being an engineer really helps, however, because it definitely gives you a set of skills that, puts you at an advantage where it stands right now definitely not for everyone um but if the advances like i mentioned where a lot of the prep could be automated uh through ai and then a lot of the post post processing post printing prep as well is automated through just uh better materials i think yeah you could have something like a printer a 2d printer right now everybody has in their house Mm -hmm. They just press a button, it prints the page, and it's done. In this case, you would um, download your file, if you wish, of what you want to print at home, send it to the printer, print it, and it's done. But you wouldn't want everybody to start printing health uh, uh, 
I don't know what to call them, but, yeah. you know, help support or help technology or stuff like that. That gets it a little bit more complicated, it right? Get, it definitely gets a lot more complicated when you're talking about health, um, especially when it's health at home. Um, but I, I don't think it's too far-fetched that it would happen. It's just there, there needs a lot of work in, um, I guess, security and safety of and curating the files, I guess. It would be more on the digital side of okay. prior to printing. Okay. And also maybe some checks within the printer, making sure that okay. the right material is being used, things like that. But there's a lot of intelligence missing in those printers. Okay. Let's put it that way. It has to. It's still in the human. So. Yeah. The intelligence <laughs> is still done, run by the human right now. So. <laughs> so how do you keep up, Mathieu? I mean, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of talk about IoT. There's a lot of talk about all that and the apps and the software is changing all the time. How do you guys keep up? Or do you have like a plan over a few years to try and upgrade? And because there are... And, and are there issues, like Olivier was mentioning, that, that, that actually your users are not all techies, right? They're not all geeks and nerds. So how do you deal with that? Yeah, you know, to me, the, the, the goal shouldn't be technology for, for technology's sake, right? The, the goal is something beyond that. It's some impact you're trying to have. Um, and you should always ask the question, how, how can technology help me achieve that goal? Um, but not, you know, what technology should I be using? Um, I think that's a kind of common trap that incumbents tend to fall to fall into a lot, right? It's, well, we want to be modern, therefore we should do X. Mm. Um, and it's usually the wrong approach. If you, you know, t so take this, this physics first principles approach, right? You're like, all right, well, I want to do X. I can do X more effectively by using certain technologies. Let me try that, right? If, you know, we say, well, right, well let's say all of our patient base is, over 70 and we did a quick survey none of them are interested in any kind of iot complicated tech stuff it's like all right great well maybe that's not the right approach or, or maybe they're just intimidated is there a way to present that in a way that doesn't feel intimidating and um you know tech heavy right it's like hey you'll plug this in your wall and like this other thing here's just gonna glow whenever it's time to take your bills well, that's great right it, it doesn't have to be presented mm -hmm. um in this sort of intimidating way yeah um, needs to be helping, not technology for its own sake. Exactly, yeah. Yeah. exactly. And I think healthcare presents this interesting um, sort of vertical to deal with where that, that sort of tech for tech's sake is rarely going to work um, because of the, the, the broad user base you're, you're targeting. Right? Inevitably, you'll be looking at um, you know, essentially everyone. Right? Everyone is a, is a consumer of healthcare. Mm -hmm. Um, and what we've tried to do is really, really stay focused on that end impact that we can have and less so on the how um, and really derive the how from the impact we want to have. That makes a lot of sense. I'm, I still have a question that, that doesn't belong here, but it's been niggling at me <laughs> sure. since the beginning. When your company was bought out by Facebook and you made the decision you wanted to go more into a startup environment, why didn't you come back here? What kept mm. you in <laughs> Silicon Valley? Yeah, you know, the, the, uh, a mentor of mine and, and a friend of mine, Justin Kahn, um, kind of explains this thing the best way. He's like, look, when you're starting a startup, everything is trying to kill you, right? That there's infinite amount of things that can go wrong and it will kill your company. You, you might as well remove as many of the obstacles as you can. Don't make it hard on yourself. You, you can be a successful startup anywhere in the world. And there's great examples of that. I mean, Shopify, just right here in Ottawa. But you, know, you might as well make it as easy as possible for yourself. 
and Silicon Valley, unfortunately, to this day, remains where all the capital is, right? And where most of the top engineering talent in the world is. And so we said, well, you know, we, we, we might as well start here because that will give us our best chance to succeed. Um, the U.S. healthcare system is also uh, much more interesting, let's say, than the, the Canadian one. I was going to allude to that. Yeah, this is more leeway, I guess. <laughs> is it easier to get your product into the system because there's a private side to it than it is in Canada with all the regulations? Or It's, it's a good question. I actually don't know much about the Canadian okay. system. Or I don't know as much as I do yeah. about the American one now. Yeah. Um, so I, I haven't dug in enough, but there's definitely a lot more, you know, the, the, the private sector, you know, a large private sector will usually allow for more competition and therefore with, for, for more success if you do it better. Yeah. Um, while when you have it very public, it tends to not allow you to succeed by being better. Um, so, so there's probably an aspect of that, but I, I honestly don't know yeah. enough. Because I have heard it that from colleagues working in, the biotechnology, the biomedical uh, sector in Quebec, for instance, because we have different systems across the country a little bit, right? Mm-hmm. But they were saying it's very difficult to come up with any type of technology or prototypes and actually being able to to try it out to, to validate the technology does pose a challenge. So I was right. imagining that maybe with the fewer barriers there are in California, that maybe it's, it's possible to do that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, okay. And what's... What's the future looking like? What do you see as the big challenges? Are they technological? Are they the clients? Are they the intermediaries that is continuing to build your company? Is it the scale? What are the big challenges? That you, or is it all of that? Or <laughs> yeah, they're definitely all of the above, but... I'm trying not to be too depressing here. But uh... <laughs> Well, you know, healthcare is this... In the U.S., right? People love saying healthcare is broken. Mm. Um, the system is broken. We need a better system. The, the it's not a particularly useful statement. It's like, sure, you know, things could be better. But the system, the system itself is the wrong solution, but each part of the system isn't necessarily bad, right? And that, that's really the, the distinction that most new entrants, the, the, the healthcare ecosystem in the U.S., um, miss, right? They're like, oh my God, we, we should do this differently. Let's blow up the whole thing and build our own version. But it's like, yeah, you're, you're not going to recreate a $4 trillion industry tomorrow, right? Mm-hmm. And it's actually quite difficult to be better than any piece in the system currently. They're, they're turns out, very, very good at what they do. They, they've kind of squeezed out all the efficiencies they could, um, maybe without a lot of tech, but they're very good at what they do. Um, and so you really need to get to scale really fast so you can so in one way not get bogged down just in customer acquisition um, or have the bad margins that a small company is sort of you know realistically has um, and you really need to lean on what technology can provide to overcome the places that you'll sort of necessarily be worse right because you haven't done this for a hundred years like the incumbents mm-hmm. um, and I think that that means a lot of sort of chunks of healthcare are just not accessible today to new entrants, um, right? or, or they cost an insane amount of money. Right? You, you've seen this in the, the insurance space in the US. You have you know, these companies with basically no traction getting three, four, five hundred million dollars because you just needed to get started. Um, it is unfortunate reality. Um, I think pharmacies is, is a kind of unique part of it that's mostly been ignored, where the, the model is, you know, 
basically what it was 40 years ago, right? It's still retail-based, and, you know, you go in and you buy something at a store, and it's the only way to get your meds. Um, and yet, you know, the internet and e-commerce has shown there's a different model possible. Um, the, the real question we were asking ourselves early on was, it's it's obvious, right? Just like, do e-commerce for pharmacy, right? Wouldn't that be better? We're clearly not the only people who have thought of that. Um, so let's, instead of asking the question, um, you know, what can we do? It's why hasn't it been done? What have people missed? Um, we actually started by um, partnering and then later buying an old neighborhood pharmacy in San Francisco. Um, this really? old mom and pop shop. Okay, uh, nice. Like a 56-year-old pharmacy. Um, and we just sat in there and we said, all right, well, let's just learn how this works. Nice. Uh, we talked to the pharmacist. We were looking at the operation. Um, I was trying to, to be part of that pharmacy. I'll take some phone calls. Yeah. Uh, we, we quickly realized that the, the reason no one had done anything wasn't because, um, you know, they hadn't thought of it. It's, it's, it's actually not a store, right? A pharmacy is unique, uniquely complicated because, you know, a store, you have a customer goes to a store and you buy something, right? A pharmacy, you have like this one party over here, the doctor ordering something for you. You have this other party over here, the insurance buying it for you. And then you have the pharmacy there trying to coordinate all these people and get them on the same page. And then you as a patient are frustrated when it's not going your way. And the pharmacy is like, well, I, I, I don't know what to do. Sorry. <laughs> like, it's not my fault. These other people just, mm-hmm. you know, they won't reply to me. They're the ones saying it's $200 for you. I, I don't know what you want me to do. Right? They don't have the tools to help. And so, you know, honestly, they don't have the economics or the time to take ownership of that coordination. And so what we said was like, all right, well, what if we take accountability for that coordination? You know, we find some efficiencies elsewhere to make up the difference, to pay for that coordination. And we build tools that enable our team to do that fairly well. And, you know, we make those, those tools better and better. Nice. Um, and that's probably the, the, the one insight that's allowed us to not get stuck in like, oh, well, we're smaller scale, you know, worse cost of goods, therefore we can't compete. We're kind of able to, to sidestep that. Um, but you're describing a very engineering type of approach to the problem. Right? Yeah, I, I'm absolutely. I think, yeah. um, I, I think that mindset, and again, I kind of go back to what we talked about earlier on, sort of learning to learn is, is, is the most important skill, right? It's problem right. solving. It's not saying this is what people do, therefore that's what we should do. It's saying, why do people do that? And should we do it or not, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I definitely didn't go into to starting a company thinking like, oh, I want a giant team, you know, running a complex operation with, you know, regulated expensive inventory on the shelves, um, right? We have millions of dollars of inventory. Yeah. Like it, it wasn't, and we, we've mostly built internal software running our pharmacy in the background instead of like cool, fun apps. Um, like I... I'm a designer at heart. I love designing beautiful things right. um, and front-facing things, not all this complexity and, and definitely have no skill set in that. We, we did all that because as we thought through the problem, that's where reality lives, um, which is actually a fairly different approach than any of our competitors that are in the startup space or any of the incumbents that have kind of done what they wanted to do instead of what the sort of the data told them to do. Mm. Um, and I think that that's, that's probably the most important thing you need to do mm-hmm. um, if you want to start a company, right? Remove that um, that arrogance of like, well, this is, this is, you know, I'm coming in with these assumptions. It's question all those and be humble toward, um, toward the space. 
So, Olivier, you're finishing your master's very, very soon. Yes. What do you do afterwards? Um, and I've in a... particular, with this discussion with Mathieu, what are you thinking now? Yeah, yeah. Well, so, I mean, I have a few... I mean, I have a full-time job at the hospital that's waiting for me, so there's that. But, I mean, I'm also working on the prosthetic hand project. Um, I'm not. I'm sure you know You know media. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so I'm working on, on it with her. So that's definitely some a project I'll be putting some time into uh, on the part-time, you know, kind of those night hours. Um, yeah, I, I mean, it's... It's because you're it's in a field to... right now where we can't scale it, scale it up. No, easily. you not very easily. Um, I mean, the, the best example of a scaled approach to that prosthetic hand project is uh, enablingthefuture.org. They've scaled it up to volunteers, but it's it's not. It's more of a. It's on the non-for-profit route, is what it is. Um, so that's actually something we're looking into. Finally, getting an incorporated name. And um, starting applying for funding for that project is what we're looking to do. Um, and we're not narrowing it either. Uh, as, as well, we're not just narrowing it to prosthetic hands. We're trying to approach anything, any service, really, that a 3D printing or expertise and um, just kind of the maker approach mm-hmm. as well. Um, yeah, so that's that's kind of future directions we're not, it's not super clear yet. So the vision isn't perfectly clear, but what's clear is that we want to make an impact socially. There is a great need for people to learn how to use this tech mm-hmm. um, and to enable people around the world, not just um, the privileged who have access to it. So thank you very much to you, both of you, to Mathieu and to Olivier for taking the time to having this conversation this morning. You're t- certainly going into moving into and already in areas that are extremely exciting in the healthcare sector. So I think we'll be hearing a lot from both of you in the future. So thanks again for joining the conversation. Of course. Thank you. It's a pleasure. That was our podcast for today. Thanks again to Mathieu and Olivier for joining me. I very much enjoyed how we discussed different ways that we can use technology to make an impact and the importance to never stop learning. If you would like to know more about Mathieu and Olivier, I invite you to consult their bios on our webpage, engineering.uottawa.ca slash podcasts. Next episode, I'll connect with Andre Richard, a class of 2011 alumnus who is now the chief technology officer and co-founder at Micrometrics, and Melody Habush, a computer science co-op student who is currently working at Clipfolio. We will be discussing startups in the Ottawa region, creativity, and the different ways they make the future. Before we finish, I'd like to thank you, the listeners, for joining us for today's discussion. If you have comments or questions, please email us at genie.engineering at uottawa.ca. That's G-E-N-I-E dot engineering at uottawa.ca. Or visit us at our faculty webpage, engineering.uottawa.ca. I also want to thank everyone who contributed to the writing, production, and editing of this podcast, including Francis Bertrand Lafrenière, Valérie Sanson, and Carl Borns. Salut à tous. See you next time. To own the future, we need to do more than just see it. We need to make it.